0: What would you like the power to
1: do? Mobile banking
0: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Gamal Gamaldeen, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Arnab Day about his book, Tea Environments and Plantation Culture, Imperial Disarray in Eastern India. Dr. Arnab Day is Associate Professor of History at the State University of New York at Binghamton and a visiting scholar at the South Asia Program, Maria Nidhi Center for International Studies at Cornell University. He completed his PhD in History and South Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago and works on the intersections of labor, social, and environmental histories. Dr. Day has held fellowships from the Andrew Mellon Foundation, the Nicholson Center for British Studies at the University of Chicago, and the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society, LMU Munich, among others. Dr. Arnab Day, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's all, pleasure's all mine. Uh, Arnab, I was, I wonder, if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, that is, where were you born, raised, where you went to school, how you became interested in environmental history, labor and tea plantations, and whether you had a mentor or scholarly work that drove your research interest. Thank you, uh,
0: Muhammad uh, So um, I did grow up in uh, in Assam, uh, the northeastern state sandwiched between uh, Tibet Tibet. Uh, China in uh, the northern part, as well as Bangladesh and Myanmar to the south and the southeast. Uh, My parents were both academics uh, in the capital of the state of Assam called Guwahati. Uh, That is where I did my earliest uh, schooling. Um, And then I went uh, to New Delhi, uh, the capital of India, as everybody knows, uh, to complete my bachelor's and first master's and MPhil. Uh, I did my bachelor's interestingly not in history but in uh, literature um, as uh, as with my first masters and MPhil they were all in uh, English literature uh, at St Stephen's College um, so in a sense to answer your question um, I-, I obviously did not uh, come predetermined to write this uh, history of uh, tea in uh, British India in in the northeastern part of the subcontinent. But I was uh, familiar, uh, intimately perhaps, subconsciously perhaps, through familial connections uh, perhaps, with the setting, uh, historical, emotive, intellectual, uh, personal, uh, of of this uh, commodity. Uh, even as I began my um, undergraduate education in New Delhi. So from uh, from Delhi, I uh, I got in touch with uh, Professor Dipesh Chakrabarty, who uh, some of uh, our listeners would know for his work on uh, post-colonial theory, um, on labor um, forms of colonial knowledge, uh, and most recently of... Uh, history in the anthropocene and climate change so i got in touch with dipesh around i would say 2002 uh, and started discussing a probable project uh, on the social history of these plantations and i will talk more as we uh, as we go along uh, some of my earliest conversations with dipesh was not about what i wrote in this book that we are discussing today but about a different kind of anthropological study of the uh, so-called quote unquote uh, tribal quote unquote autochthon groups uh, who were brought in by british uh, and european planters to assam from other parts of india for these uh, for these uh, commodity uh, you know for these cash crop commodities so that was an early uh, project that i actually came to the university of chicago uh, with uh, as happens uh, with uh, you know graduate work, uh, it evolved. But labor, since you mentioned uh, very uh, uh, very uh, graciously uh, my research intersections, since labor was always at the center of this project, it never really went away. Uh, what happened uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, where I completed my doctoral in history and South Asian languages and civilizations is that this project became, um, I mean, it, it, it got amplified into including things that other scholars uh, and generations of historians had somehow elided in looking at this uh, commodity. So anyhow, to answer your question, uh, uh, University of Delhi, St. Stephen's College, bachelor's, master's, MPhil, uh, PhD, uh, University of Chicago, and from there I joined uh, SUNY Binghamton uh, in the history department uh, in. 2012, and I have been there since. Uh, live in Ithaca, uh, as you said, I have a, a visiting appointment at Cornell, uh, the South Asia program, and that's where I am.
1: Very good. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, how did you come to write tea environments and plantation culture?
0: Yes, uh, thank you for that question. So let me uh, let me then get into a little more uh, substance about this work, and we can uh, we can dissect it. Uh, as we go along so uh, for any student of uh, modern South Asian history if not South Asian history in its entirety which as uh, many of our listeners uh, and you might know is, is is quite vast and it's quite dense and it and it ranges uh, for a very long period of time so for any student of South Asian history um, labor uh, is a central um, A theme, or it's a central sort of field of research. Uh, And there are multiple reasons for that, Uh, one of which is the long um, and robust uh, influence of the uh, Marxist School of uh, Labor Studies in India, which in turn has been influenced by British Marxists, uh, not least by uh, E.P. Thompson. Uh, and, uh, you know, Eric Hobsbawm and many others. So I I was very familiar with that particular uh, genre of history. I was very much uh, exposed to that branch of Indian history and Indian history writing and thinking even before I came to the University of Chicago. I mean, E.P. Thompson and his uh, monumental work on the uh, English working classes was always on my desk in New Delhi so in a sense labor was very much uh, something that i was going to work on and that that is really something uh, that this project was initially about it was going to be about uh, the penal indentured system that this particular uh, plantation uh, form in eastern india was known for it was in form and structure uh, distinct from uh, other tea plantations within the subcontinent coffee plantations in uh, Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, it was distinct because of its use of this penal indentured system. So I was definitely going to write about that. And that that was really this project uh, for a very long period of time. Uh, I would say almost up to until the end of my graduate school. But I, I reached uh, towards the end of my graduate uh, sort of career and, and uh, investment with this history, I reached what I can... Only describe as an intellectual cul-de-sac, and why do I call it a cul-de-sac? I call it a cul-de-sac, and I have written about this in my introduction. Um, I call it uh, I call it a a sort of a dead end because generations of scholars, uh, starting from Ranajit Das Gupta and all of the others, have repeatedly stressed on the. Uh, Material relations of production in this particular tea plantation form in Assam in eastern India, as well as uh, as well as work and labor systems in colonial South Asia in general. So th- there is already a very robust scholarship and existing field of knowledge about forms of labor systems of indenture uh, work. Uh, a rhythms, a terms of contract, wages, labor unrest, desertions, etc. In other words, to to summarize, I was I was not being able to find anything new to say, if I am absolutely honest with you, because we were going round and round in circles. We 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 were talking. Uh, we were we were. Uh, you know, It was almost like an intellectual circumlocution. Why was this particular form of uh, commodity production uh, uh, oppressive? Because uh, of its penal indentured system. Why was penal indentured system necessary? Because Assam was a frontier. It was a back of beyond. Why is that necessary? Because uh, tea was an important uh, item of trade and commerce for the British Empire after the Second Opium War. So in a sense, I reached a point where I could not find anything new to say. And that was a problem. It was at that time that uh, my second uh, doctoral advisor, Frederick uh, Johnson, suggested I try to question why material relations of production became so predominant as a frame of reference for these plantations. Was there nothing else to these plantations? Did it not have an ecological base that it used and, as I have argued, abused for its own use. Was nature as a form and function benign in the way tea was grown, tea was uh, circulated, manufactured, forced to be manufactured in British East India? Why, why was that not an important heuristic frame of reference? Could I do something about it? Could I look at into these connections between text and context, the text being the form of this commodity production, the context being the environment in which it was grown, where there are no connections between labor use and abuse and natural manipulation. So these are some of these questions. Interestingly, these questions came about almost towards the tail end of my graduate career, by which time I had received a job offer. And this is really... um, this project really uh, took off towards the end of my, uh, you know, a graduate career in Chicago. Over these last, I would say, uh, about five six years. So this is where I, you know, uh, you know, uh, this is why I I wrote this book. This is why the title says the environments and plantation culture. Culture not something essential. It is not something that th- it's not something that is that means primordial. I have explained this in the introduction. It means uh, it means the setting, it means the kind of work that these uh, that this particular commodity uh, you know uh, form took. It means an entire culture of commerce that this particular plantation form utilized, used, and abused for its own ends. I hope that answers your question a little bit. I spoke for
1: quite a long time. No, very fascinating. Uh, thank you for that uh and we'll we'll probably trace back to some of the points you you brought up uh in that answer um now Arna, i was hoping you could paint a picture for our listeners about the natural environment human settlement and pests that make up the landscape of your case study on the tea plantations in assam Mm -hmm.
0: yeah sure thanks so uh you know uh, i'll try to paint the picture as As some of our listeners may know uh, this particular plant uh, camellia sinensis uh, has a storied history. This plant was actually in use and i'm I'm speaking from uh, evidentiary history not not uh, from a figment of my imagination. There is evidence uh, however tenuous that this particular plant was consumed uh, by again quote unquote autochthon or uh, tribal quote unquote groups in northeastern part of india which by extension had connections uh, with its use in yunnan and and uh, china so the landscape that we are talking about landscape both metaphorically and literally uh, was already awash with uh, these plants growing in abandon before the british empire took over and they did not obviously take this over uh, you know overnight there was a process it was uh, it was uh, through several decades of experimentation and that's really what i talk about in my book the landscape was one where this particular plant was already growing but it was not growing as a plantation and that's precisely the point I'm also making uh, in, uh, in, in, as part of my argumentative framework. These, pl- these plants were not growing as neatly grown and manicured monocultures. So the landscape that we now know as showcasing plantations, whether they be coffee, tea, uh, rubber, tobacco, etc., are, in a sense cosmetic. They're manufactured. There's a hand of humans involved. So the British uh, took over this particular uh, part of uh, of the colony, uh, systematically uh, encouraged speculators, British capitalists, entrepreneurs, uh, to come and, quote unquote, improve this particular part of the land, which was always and continues in some way to be seen as wild, unruly, a frontier in all senses of the term. Uh, So the landscape is one that was manufactured. The landscape is one that was superimposed by a certain a priori, Whiggish notion of order, improvement, progress what Have you? This is a landscape that also involved the uh, manicuring, if I may use that word in a historical sense, of existing forms and systems of habitation, primarily paddy or rice cultivation, because these are also areas that were surrounded by peasants and the peasant forms of uh, existence. This was also a landscape, and as I have argued in one of my chapters, this was also a landscape that was densely forested, so that, that meant that establishing these manicured, orderly, quote unquote, cash crops entailed clearing away and felling of trees. But it was a double-edged sword, and I can talk about it separately. So this is a very complex landscape. People had been living in this landscape for millennia. They were growing tea, but not in the form we know it now. They were not having it with uh, sugar and milk, obviously. But when the British Empire needed a a separate standalone space to scramble with Chinese manufacturing that it had lost post uh, the Opium Wars, this was the land that they found. It was almost providential, which is why there is this ideological. Apparatus of Providence and a second Eden and a discovery sort of involved in the way I have framed my arguments, which is not unknown uh, in historical scholarship of other systems of cash crops. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, Mohammed, but this, this is a landscape that had people living in them. This is landscapes where villagers tilled their crops, paddy was grown. This is also hilly area uh, with, uh, which had its own natural systems of drainage. Which had to be artificially imposed upon. This was a landscape that was uh, that was systematically rendered uh, somehow uh, sort of grid-like because of the need to amplify the growth of tea for uh, export during the British Empire. It continues to be that. way.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, that's perfect uh, segue to uh, the the rest of the discussion, I believe. Um, next, I would like to ask, uh, your research uses a unique methodology that adds new methodological tools to study labor, the environment, and empire in colonial India. Specifically, you coined the term imperial disarray. Could you elaborate on your methodology and this idea of imperial disarray? Yes,
0: uh, absolutely. So... Uh, let let me actually uh let me actually go back to what I just said about imposing a certain kind of order as will be well known for students of history, particularly students of capitalism, commodity uh uh production uh labor, um, a certain kind of imperial uh ordering, if you will. Uh, Richard Drayton's work is is uh, is something that comes to my mind. Uh, Nature's government, the idea of bringing the hand of providence, in short, uh, colonization as amelioration, I think, is by now very well known, and we see this idea of colonization as ameliorative very predominantly uh, uh, put into operation in monocultures across the, uh, uh, you know, the length and breadth of empires, not least the British Empire, but all empires. And this is where I, so this is one of my methodological frameworks for this book, which is that I I take this idea of discovery. I take this idea of progress, agrarian proselytization, if you will. It's kind of an agrarian idea of of proselytizing. I take this as one of the foundational heuristic analytic frameworks to understand what what emerged as a result of this ideological drive to improve the back and beyond of the jewel of the British Indian Empire. What what happened as a result thereof is obviously very complex, and that that is what I address in my book. But I I have used the word disarray uh, not least to provide a counter narrative to this Enlightenment dictum of biosocial order. This idea of improvement is very much part of this Enlightenment and post Enlightenment idea of biosocial order, as I have said and as we all know. Rather, I have used the word disarray to uh, refer to the ideological, the material, and the discursive inconsistencies. Consequences and contradictions of this plantation form and its purported mandate of improvement and agrarian development in British India. And by disarray, I therefore do not just mean disorder, I also mean legal elasticity, I mean illegalities, I mean intended and unintended consequences for humans as well as for the landscape uh, that. That this particular crop was grown in. I mean, an entire bureaucratic apparatus which put up a face of bringing civilization, but was fundamentally based on exceeding the reach of legality. In other words, there is a, an almost oxymoronic idea to disarray here. In a sense, I have basically argued that this particular commodity form needed. I'm not validating. Um, That's my argument. I've argued that this particular commodity form needed illegality to put its facade of legality into operation. That too, for me, is disarray. So in a sense, it's both. It's disarray in an obvious sense. There is disorder. I have argued, uh, I've shown how these plantation forms launched an entire um, a, an, an entire wave of non-native invasive species, which still, still remains in the landscapes and lives of people in this part of the subcontinent. I have argued how, in the interest of profits, the tea enterprise actually exceeded the bounds of bodily capacity of laborers, which in turn led to vast mortality and disease malaria black fever uh cholera being just three which in turn was utilized to prop up an illegal recruiting system which in turn led to the passage of a series of labor acts which in turn was mostly followed in its breach so in a sense it's it's a never-ending cycle of Trying to balance this facade and a face of a civilizing mission while also utilizing everything but bounds of legality to put it into operation with the singular idea of generating profits. So it's in that duality that disarray exists. It refers to things that are expedient, it refers to things that are illegal. It refers to things that were introduced, pests and disease. It refers to legal elasticity and bending of rules to make way for this tea enterprise. So it's an entire apparatus of operation that I have called disarray in this book. So it does not just simply refer to uh, something that is messy or unruly. I wonder if that, Thank helps, you. If that helps. Yeah. Yes, it,
1: yes, that helps a lot. And I, I think that, that uh, points to some of the uh, the questions that I'll have uh, later, uh, in particular related around uh, the the debates around legality uh, yeah. that, that that appear. Um, so, if I may, uh, in in chapter one, you lay out for the reader the journey of the tea plant in Assam. Could you detail the imperial project to find the so called right type of tea? Also, I'd love if you could speak about how choices on where to plant the tea physically or literally may have also affected the final outcome.
0: Yes, thank you. Uh, so the first chapter um, is, is really an overview of well-known uh, histories of, of tea plantations across, uh, across the imperial divide, not least in India. Uh, I, I was trying to give a context uh, as to how and why, as you ask. Uh, Assam in northeastern India became this kind of the jewel in the jewel in the crown because uh, you know this was the mainstay for the British uh, Empire's tea production for a very long time. It remains uh, it remains one of the major uh, exporters of uh, of black tea of very fine quality black tea right now. So um, you know the context is is not very difficult to understand. Uh, the context is the Opium War, and uh, for for the British and for our purposes, that is uh, having lost uh, one of the mainstays of uh, you know of tea production uh, because of the Opium War, the British Empire was really at odds. Uh, there was a scramble to uh, to find, as it were, a kind of a standalone perhaps independent source of revenue for this, for this commodity, which by then had already started becoming hot property in, in the metropolis and was soon going to also uh, make inroads uh, in North America. But that's a separate story. And along with this sort of um, strategic need to find a standalone independent location for, for its own prized product, there was another. Uh, there was another reason as to why Assam was chosen, and this answers or this goes to your question about about suitability. For for a very long time after the sort of formal uh, annexation of Assam into the British Empire in eighteen twenty six, for a very long period thereafter, I would say between eighteen twenty six and all the way up to eighteen fifty, there there were continual experiments made to figure out whether tea that was found growing wild in Assam was indigenous and by extension could therefore be claimed as a unique product of the British Empire, or if that wildly growing plant was an already grafted product of its Chinese cousin that we all know existed by this time for a very long period. So there was this long period of horticultural, bureaucratic, ideological, you could even, I have argued, partly ethno-racial debate between tea planters, tea entrepreneurs, botanists, horticulturalists, scientists, back in London and in Calcutta, the capital of the British Indian Empire in 1911, regarding the status of this plant. And as I have argued in this book, tea has always been, and was particularly during the colonial period, a highly political plant. Uh, so there was a long debate about the status of this plant, uh, primarily around the question of whether it was a hybrid or whether it was a unique standalone species. The latter was what came to hold sway from around the 1850s after several years of uh, botanical horticultural experimentation. So this was the context the the opium war was the immediate geostrategic, if you will context as to why this location was providential or was seen as providential. I mean it was a gift in the lap of the empire as it, to be able to find as they used to call it, gold in the wilds of Assam. It was no less than gold. But there is another substratum to that context, to that geostrategic context, and that is this idea that we need to figure out whether this is a hybrid of the Chinese plant or if this is a unique standalone botanical variety. And around the 1850s, obviously these dates are not precise, as we know, uh, there was a general consensus that the tea that was found growing wild, quote-unquote, and was then civilized, quote-unquote, using uh, quote-unquote advanced methods of uh, commodity production, monoculture, cash crop commodity production, there was a consensus around the 1850s that this is actually a standalone variety and not a hybrid. I think it is after that point, around 1850s, that the scramble of, of speculators, land grabbers, planters, and soon An entire cadre of scientists, entomologists, botanists, horticulturalists, surgeons of the East India Company and thereafter the British Indian Empire would ensue. It's only after the 1850s that the scramble for Assam, if I were to use that rather anachronistic phrase, ensues. The period before that, particularly between the time of Assam's formal annexation in 1826, to repeat what I said, and 1850s is really a period of uh, experimentation. I wonder if that answers your question, Mahmoud.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, it definitely uh, answers the question. And thank you for uh, going into detail, some of that, uh, the creation of this monoculture uh, or uh, in the 1850s. Um, the next question uh, relates to chapter two. Uh, it's a fascinating deep dive, this chapter, into the debate between whether the tea plantations and the production of the final product were either agricultural or industrial, could you tell us more about the debates and the various players involved? Yes,
0: uh, you know this again. Uh, just, just you know, taking a quick aside to uh, how these things uh, work in terms of uh, of research and writing. I wouldn't have uh, I wouldn't have ventured on this particular aspect, which I have never found in the long history of Marxist scholarship on tea. I, I did never found uh, this kind of uh, analysis. I wouldn't have been able to do so myself had it had I not found a nugget of information buried somewhere along uh, an unpublished paper uh, or a memoir. It was I can't remember of a planter who was vociferously arguing against being. Uh, Taxed for uh, his plantations. So you know, just you know, just tracing um, tracing my response back to the exact question. So what is this debate about, and why did I uh, why did I uh, include it in, in my uh, in my work? Well, there are two reasons. One is theoretical. One is empirical. The theoretical bit goes to answering that larger methodological framework for this work which is this idea of uh, ideological triumphalism there was an enormous amount of triumphalism literally metaphorically bureaucratically prof- you know uh, professionally about this discovery so there was this idea that we we made it we know exactly what we are going to do about this product and its landscape and obviously by extension the lives of the people who will will be involved in making it so there's this idea that we know how to handle the production of this plant in fact my book is showing that they did not know even till the very end and we still don't know uh, a lot of things about how to make tea it's a hit or miss it's a continual uh, sort of exercise in uh, in education anyhow so what is the debate about so one of the one of the idea behind this chapter titled agriculture or manufacture as you said uh, is about whether this particular enterprise was uh, was an agrarian venture or was it an industrial one? So while while theoretically speaking, I wanted to show through this debate, which which you know which raged for almost uh, you know uh, half a century. One, on, on the one side, I wanted to show that nothing was settled as far as this particular commodity form this monoculture commodity form was concerned. There was continual debate between all major stakeholders of this enterprise. And obviously, uh, local indigenous stakeholders come at the very bottom of that rung, if at all. So who are these stakeholders? Well, first, primarily the tea brokering houses in London and in Calcutta. There are uh, local agency houses who were the intermediaries between the uh, the big uh, brokerage firms these local agency houses were primarily housed in calcutta there was the indian tea association the ita as i have referred uh, throughout my work the indian tea association had two offices one in london one in calcutta and an extension in assam another stakeholder were obviously uh, the planters a fifth or a fourth stakeholder were local intermediaries primarily the uh, the labor uh, Recruiters, so at every level of this uh, of this operation, there were uh, vociferous um, and never really settled debate as to whether this particular enterprise should be taxed under the income tax regulations or not, because as I have shown in chapter two, uh, purely agrarian ventures were kept outside of the income tax. And that has partially to do with, uh, uh, you know, uh, with with all kinds of reasons, not least uh, because of uh, the, the idea of a double impost uh, in uh, in agrarian ventures. So you know, the idea is is that the idea of this chapter was to show that at at every step of this, uh, or at every at every level of this plantation's operation, there was an unsettled question as to what this particular enterprise should be categorized as. Should it be categorized as agrarian or should it be categorized as industrial? And if it is categorized as industrial, where should industry end and agriculture begin and vice versa? So the point was not really to get into a I mean, the point uh, that I was trying to get into was not to actually decide this question for us because the question remained uh, sort of tentative. But the point of getting into this, you know, kind of forgotten uh, footnote of the economic history of, of British India, as it were, was to show that lots of rules and regulations could be sidestepped, bent, overruled, looked askance, or simply forgotten in the interest of commerce and capital. I mean, that's really the point here. And it goes, it's part of that disarray element that I that I have already uh, sort of hinted at, and as you hinted at, that there was no finality to this question of whether this was an agricultural venture or an industrial one. In fact, what I'm suggesting is that there wouldn't have been one, because it was precisely in that liminality. It was precisely in that indeterminacy. It was precisely in in sort of exceeding the grounds of whether the tea enterprise should be taxed or not that this idea of profiteering rested. It's precisely in this idea of not being able to decide that this particular
1: commodity form thrived. And that's really what I was getting at in this chapter. Thank you for that. And thank you for the real Interesting research aside, uh, reminds us historians about reading our, our materials, uh, yes. uh, our sources uh, very closely.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, And uh, I'm glad you uh, tackled uh, the imperial disarray uh, again. Uh, delving into the non-human aspect, yes, you look into the complex world of pest and disease. Would you yes. speak some about the mosquito, its relationship I, to the natural yes. environment, yeah. How both the tea plantations and the adjacent rice fields created the perfect environment for the spread of pests and disease.
0: Yes, thank you. So this is, I think, we are really touching upon chapters three and four. Uh, They're two sides of the same coin, actually. Uh, Three is on uh, on uh, you know plant pests and disease, and chapter four is actually on human disease, particularly uh, diseases. uh, I mean, the staggering mortality and disease and death uh, that befell. uh, the tea labor, uh, and actually continues to befall uh, tea labor in, uh, Assam, uh, in the Assam plantations. So yes, uh, the non-human element uh, perhaps is the most uh, controversial aspect in this work. And here again, I'm, I'm sort of drawing a little bit of an aside, because this is something that has actually uh, uh, caused a lot of uh, concern and disaffection amongst people. Uh, Uh, Marxist uh, labor uh, historians, uh, not least in India, I mean, uh, but primarily in India, because this is seen as something of an aside. I mean, it's kind of an afterthought, uh, perhaps uh, unnecessary to include in a system of operation that was, by definition, uh, uh, kind of oppressive. Anyhow, we can come back to that a little later. So uh, the mosquito, this is actually not a mosquito uh, that we know, uh, you know. The tea, I'm here right now I'm talking about that there are two mosquitoes uh, actually involved one is one is the T mosquito that I that I talk about and write about in chapter three this looks like a mosquito uh, the common anophilies but it's not a mosquito uh, per se uh, but I'm just going to briefly touch upon the uh, the complexity of the bug uh, the pest problem again it, it sort of it sort of loops back into the improvement and the idea of control. Uh, that we are talking about sort of uh, subconsciously always. So uh, the re- research uh, and, and entomological evidence uh, has given us uh, incontrovertible sort of uh, proof. And I talk about that in uh, in Chapter 3, and for those of us uh, listeners who are interested may, may find the references in the footnotes. Entomologists have given us incontrovertible evidence that this particular pest, uh, the Helopeltis, uh, as it is known uh, in scientific uh, in the scientific community, uh, Helopeltis wasn't it. It was not a native species. It emerged as a consequence of this monocultural uh, cropping, uh, and that has partially to do with uh, uh, well. It has partially to do with how natural drainage was disrupted as a result of these vast uh, plantation acreage. But it has also partially to do with the uh, the, the botanical quality and the olfactory uh, uh, accrescence of the tea leaf itself. In other words, to put it simply, helopeltis is actually drawn to the, uh, the smell of the tea leaf. And I am, just as a disclaimer, no entomologist. I've just, I, I became a student of entomology because I found it fascinating in terms of the historical wisdom that it could provide us uh, in terms of understanding a different facet of this, of this uh, history. Anyhow, so the, the helopeltis emerged, among many other pests that I talk, that I talk about in Chapter 3, as a consequence of the natural reordering, if you will, if not disordering, of this landscape um, uh, during and beyond the uh, the monoculture cash cropping uh, in British India. As far as human um, diseases are concerned, and since you asked about the rice fields, and there is a lot of parallel here between, uh, for instance, uh, Paul Sutter's work on the Panama Canal, for example, uh, or uh, John McNeil's work on uh, mosquito empires, uh, for instance. Uh, there is a lot of parallel here. Uh, or J.L.R. Webb's uh, study uh, of, of uh, cholera in uh, Sri Lanka, for instance. So the, as far as the human diseases in Assam is concerned, and here I'm just going to speak about cholera uh, and malaria because it directly addresses your question about contiguous rice fields. Uh, it's again a double-edged sword. It's again that idea of both requiring and exceeding the bounds of, um, of legality. So what exactly is the problem? Well, to put it simply, uh, because your labor wages were kept very, very low, planters uh, encouraged. And this is a well-known story. Because labor wages were kept very low, planters encouraged their labor force to actually grow rice in the area surrounding the plantations. Now, what does that mean? It meant that, again, natural drainage was disrupted because of the embankments to grow paddy. And what does that mean? That obviously means that the stagnant pools of water attracted the mosquito that we now know, not the helopeltis but the Anopheles. And what does that mean? It means that these Anopheles were obviously uh, drawing blood from the bare... uh, footed labor force who were toiling away in the fields during much of the day and then growing their paddy to augment their subsistence, wages, and food uh, ration during the rest of the day. And what does that mean? It means that cholera and malaria were virulent. And it feels odd to talk about virulence right now, but it was absolutely, absolutely rampant in fact continues to be rampant uh, during uh, the british period as well as in the post colonial period so what are, uh, you know just to sum up the idea of plant pests and human diseases this is a this is an ongoing story of an imperial uh, attempt at natural ordering which led to disorder which led to another argument for order which led to further disorder and so on ad infinitum. And this, again, negotiated the bounds of legality and exceeded that bounds as necessary, looked askance when needed, uh, and, and that story continues. So the helopeltis, the tea mosquito, as well as the anopheles the human mosquito, are two sides of the same coin, and that's what I really talk about in chapters 3 and 4. I wonder, I hope that answers your question.
1: Yes, and I think it's it's a great segue um, into my next question, uh, because you brought up uh, cholera, and malaria, uh, and specifically cholera, and the the need uh, uh, the use of quarantine and, and methods yes. of surveillance, mm-hmm. could you discuss briefly um, surveillance methods uh, that uh, that were applied to those who uh, came to work in the plantations? Yes, uh, you know. Again,
0: as with everything, this is a very uh, interesting in a in a historical sense, but very painful in a in a literal sense story. Uh, quarantine was not an easy thing in the plantations because there were, it, I mean, it was not an easy thing because different systems and locations of authority intersected and clashed. Let me explain. So one would assume that the planter was. Uh, completely in control of his or her usually his labor force well that was true for a large extent but planters were not doctors they were not physicians they had no idea about how to tackle malaria or cholera for instance so who was called into these plantations which were by all means remote and far flung from uh, you know the nearest uh, town in british east india and definitely quite far from the capital of british India which is Calcutta so who are called into to manage uh, let's say a cholera outbreak obviously an inspector or uh, a physician but there is a secondary problem here when an inspector uh, or uh, you know a physician is called into these plantations who is in charge is it the physician or is it the planter so it perennially happened that these ideas of quarantine well actually before I forget there is a third problem. And this has to do with the logics of capitalism. If you quarantine a large labor force or a large portion of your labor force, who is going to toil in the fields? So in a way, systems of work, demands of capital, a constant eye towards profits, location of power and authority all clashed with each other when it came to questions of quarantine. I'm just giving you a nugget. Maybe not even a very explanatory nugget of information here. So while it was necessary to have the labor inspector or the physician, remember, also mandated, at least in print, by these labor laws. So these labor laws were also quite fascinating because it enshrined a whole schema of labor welfare, which, as we know, students of history would know this, and students of labor would definitely know this, which were all followed in the breach rather than in practice. So these labor laws had actually enshrined that planters would need to call a physician or a labor inspector to the plantation if there was an outbreak. So you know, oftentimes they did call. And then what happened? Just what I explained, the you know, systems of operation, uh, you know, egos, locations of power and prestige, authority, all clashed. But oftentimes these cholera outbreaks were never reported. Because the planter involved or a planter in question did not want to quarantine his or her, usually his, labor force uh, for fear of losing work hours. So what I'm basically then saying is that the information on quarantine that we have, so this is the medical history in Chapter 5, actually, for those of you, uh, those of our listeners interested. Uh, sorry, Chapter 4. Uh, when we come to the question of quarantine, statistics is actually our worst uh, you know, it's both our best friend as our worst enemy because the statistics uh, cannot be trusted uh, to give us, a, a, you know, a realistic picture of what was going on in these plantations. So it's it's, a, it's, it's an entire gamut of uh, very, intri- you know, very intricate and intersecting uh, uh, strategies. Uh, but there's a question of power. There's a question of authority. There's a question of health. There's a question of law. Uh, there's a question of work and productivity. Let's not also forget uh, reproductive health, uh, because there's a lot of women involved in these plantations. Uh, so quarantine uh, gave me, well, not just quarantine, but human disease, labor disease particularly, gave me a very unique window to actually probe the limits of legality and illegality, uh, work ethic, as well as uh, this, this culture of commerce that I was talking about. It gave me a window uh, to understand how law was this double-edged sword. That both facilitated, uh, you know, uh, wanton labor recruitment as well as restricted uh, the the uh, the reach of the planter. So that that's that's really uh, that's really what I what what I would say about quarantine. It's it's never one thing. It was never just one thing. Uh, uh, you know, a cure of a cause. It was it was uh, it was an entire plethora of uh, of operational, bureaucratic, personal, professional a capitalistic uh, uh, sort of logjam, if you will. Sorry, I I kind of digressed a little bit.
1: No, thank you. Uh, Appreciate the digressions. Um, You spoke earlier about the double-edged sword, and I think in the next section Mm -hmm. uh, speaks well to this idea. Now, the movement of tea to the imperial center required tea boxes, as you explained. Boxes which were made of wood harvested in India, in Mm -hmm. Assam. Yet this is just part of the reasoning behind the growth of uh, forest uh, conservancy. Could yeah. you explain to our listeners about the forest department conservancy and the economics of tea and lumber?
0: Yes. Uh, so this, uh, so I did. Uh, you know, as as will be evident to those who eventually uh, pick up my book, this this book is a mishmash of different kinds of subfields, is, as it were. So chapter five is actually it's it's trying to intervene in a very well known sub-genre, if you will, of, in, of South Asian environmental history, which is forest history. Uh, let, me, let, me, uh, let me try to provide a more succinct answer to your question. So as I, as I said in an earlier uh, response, these lands where tree was grown were covered with very dense forests. But um, you know, just, just as with tea, which was, which was being grown uh, by local indigenous populations, These dense forests were, until 1860s, never systematically husbanded. It's a strange word, but it was never systematically uh, sort of taken care of, as it were. And that's where I intervene into this well-known history of forestry in British India. Very quickly, the history is that from the 1860s, an entire cadre of foresters who were in turn trained by their German counterparts uh, came to India to actually establish an Indian forest service. Uh, and it still remains, uh, as we know. What was, the, what was the task? I mean, the task was manifold. Uh, it need, I mean, the task was to actually conserve valuable woods for the British Indian Navy, uh, to provide for sleepers, for railways, the burgeoning railways, not least in India, but also in in the metropole. But part of the uh, mandate of the forestry service, the Indian Forest Service, after 1860, was actually to, it's it's an interesting corollary to the idea, the Whiggish Enlightenment idea of monocultural order. It's the same thing. Part of the mandate of the Forestry Department was actually to husband, to take care of, to manicure, quote-unquote, to conserve, and to render these wild jungles, this word used in the Indian context, South Asian context, to render the jungle into some kind of manageable order. I mean, that's that's the story behind. I mean, in in a sense, it's it's a very simplified version. But this is the story of why the Indian Forest Service was sent as an official arm of the British Indian Empire. So, what's the story that I tell in chapter five, which is titled "Conservation of Commerce with a Question Mark"? It's a very interesting clash of two major resource stakeholders in the eastern fringes of the British Indian Empire. And what is the clash? The clash is that. The tea enterprise needed forests for its own use, but the forestry department also needed forests for its own use. So it's it's a clash of uh, two different logics of capitalist expropriation and exploitation, if you will. So the tea enterprise needed forests, as you said, Muhammad, for its tea boxes. It needed forests for shade. It needed forests for lumber, for its factories, for sleepers you know, these planks that were put under railway uh, lines. So forests is actually a valuable resource that has to be protected. But it was also felled. It was also cut down. But the forestry department was not happy about the wanton cutting away of this. It's only resource that it was mandated to take care of by planters and, and tea entrepreneurs. Now, here comes a third complication. The forestry department had no customers in the Eastern fringes of the British Indian empire, except for the tea enterprise. So if I'm making sense, there are three things going on at the same time that I talk about in chapter five. One is an ideological mandate to conserve forests. That's the mandate of the Indian Forestry department. The second problem here is that the tea enterprise, which is also a major and a valuable and a, and a kind of a chosen arm of a British capitalist, uh, uh, you know expansion needed forests both for its own use as well as to to fell to to basically open up new clearings for new plantation areas which in turn riled up the forestry department because this is exactly the opposite of what it was sent to do thirdly the forest department needed a customer, for its own lumber and woods that it would husband and occasionally also sell. And who was the customer in these eastern fringes? Who was the main customer? There were very few customers. The main customer was the tea enterprise. So, this then, and this is what I show, led to a very uneasy bending of forestry rules, particularly for the precise purpose of accommodating and creating elastic pathways. For the forestry department on the one hand, and the tea enterprise on the other hand, to somehow manage and adjust its somehow incompatible ideological, bureaucratic, and economic ambitions. So there was a you know, there was a lot of bending of rules, as it were, precisely to create space for these seemingly incompatible, contradictory and clashing ideologies and economic mandates between the tea enterprise on the one hand and the forestry department on the other. And this is really what I show in Chapter 5. It's a unique uh, sort of moment in the history of imperial forestry where one of the most venerable foresters uh, would somehow argue, uh, B.H. Baden-Powell, would somehow argue for the bending of rules in order to create some degree of legitimacy for the existence of the forestry department in Assam and in Eastern India. The legitimacy being that if we don't sell and if we don't husband for the tea enterprise, what are we even doing there? So in, our, in other words, in other, in other words, this disarray is visible. This bending of rules, this, this legal elasticity, this sort of incompatibility with, uh, with uh, intent and execution this idea of uh, of somehow overreaching your advertised mandate of order in order to actually create or, or seemingly create order are all visible in these contradictory moments uh, in the economic history uh, of the forestry department and the tea enterprise uh, in Eastern India.
1: Thank you for that intervention uh, in Chapter 5. Uh, now finally, you write that the protests of nineteen twenty twenty one were remarkable not because of their timing or and Ovar, but because it forced open the illegal and unseen market logics that ran the sm uh, plantation industry uh, would you please elaborate further on this point if you would yes uh thanks so in the in the sixth chapter
0: i actually uh i kind of uh sp- I kind of make a segue into a different kind of uh, economic politics. and it goes back to what I said about tea being a political plant. Uh, students of Indian history and and generally of the history of South Asia may know this particular uh, time period as being uh, a rather momentous one because uh, Mahatma Gandhi's non-cooperation movement. Uh, was reaching its kind of apogee a uh, first round of apogee at this time but there was another uh, there was another momentous change going on in the eastern fringes of the british indian empire and that that was going on in these plantations and what was going on simply to provide a context to what you asked uh, Mohammed, is that uh ni- between the years nineteen twenty and twenty one international uh national and international uh, audience perhaps for the first time if if at all realized the uh, the enormity of uh, of the labor problem and use and abuse in these far flung uh, reaches of empire because they were systematic sustained and a very uh, and a very determined effort by uh, by by tea workers to actually leave these plantations en masse. Uh, obviously, this included violence. And it was not as if violence and desertions and clashes between planters and laborers were not going on before. Of course, they were going on before. But during this period between 1920 and 21, the uh, severity and the intensity and the, uh, the sort of... Uh, the 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 uh, the interval of labor protests um, increased manifold. it increased much more than it had ever been. So in other words, between nineteen twenty and twenty one it lasted into twenty two. There was sustained labor protests, labor unrests, labor walkouts and 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 labor desertions uh, from these plantations. Back to wherever they were brought in from, mostly from Central India, from Bengal, uh, and and a little bit from Southern India. This had active uh, support from the Indian National Congress, uh, including uh, some members of uh, the uh, uh, of the British Empire uh, themselves, uh, sympathizers. But this was also actively clamped down on. So, what is the story that I am trying? This is again a well-known story for students of Indian labor history. The story that I am telling, or at least, or I, I think I'm, or I, or I hope I was trying to tell, is that much of the existing historical wisdom on this particular, uh, on this particular protest or this period, has been told from the uh, perspective of uh, the larger history of Indian nationalism and civil disobedience. In other words, these protests were seen as an extension of Gandhi's uh, civil disobedience movement. You know, it was seen as being caused partially by the existence of members from the Indian National Congress uh, in these uh, plantations who therefore uh, influenced the workers to leave. In other words, if this is making sense, these protests during 1920-21 in the Assam plantations have been read, studied, discussed, and written about as an extension of a larger politics of protest. And I'm not denying that. I'm not saying that, that that did not necessarily happen. What I'm saying instead is that This kind of quibbling, this kind of historical quibbling about causality, how did it happen, who was responsible, deviates attention from the larger endemic processes that these protests highlighted, or at least unearthed. And what are these processes? And that's really the story that I tell in the chapter Plant and Politics. The The unseen and kind of hidden Almost a sort of surreptitious politics that these protests, at least to me as 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 a historian, unearthed, is not just that these were extensions of a Gandhian politics of civil disobedience. It unearthed a very insidious nexus between legality and illegality that I have been talking about throughout this book. But it is here in this chapter that you know, using economic uh, data. Among other uh, sort of uh, evidence, uh, including unpublished uh, uh, classified correspondence between police and uh, and labor contractors, etc., I, I show that th- this this these protests were actually precipitated by a simmering discontent, you know, amongst labor among amongst tree workers, of just how just how much had been overstepped, in terms of. Uh, wages in terms of uh, food promised or otherwise in terms of hours of work in terms of a um, quantum of work in terms of who would be classified as uh, as a worker uh, receiving a particular wage so you know in a sense these uh, these protests, brought to the surface an entire uh well including d- disease uh you know it you know uh, uh, disease environments so these protests actually precipitated as well as were precipitated by uh, di- you know almost in a, a half a half a century of discontent with this kind of an illegal operation that this that these plantations are effectively uh you know characterized by there were there were obviously uh, you know questions of mortality. There were questions of uh, wages. There were questions of uh, denying uh, uh, reproductive uh, you know sort of health measures. Uh, so what I am basically trying to suggest in this particular chapter is is that if we bring together the plant on the one side and the plantation on the other, if you bring the ecological and the social together. Using these sustained protests as as uh, you know as as the uh, as the crux, uh, you would see two sides of the same coin, which is that these plantations were primarily run through an elaborate facade of illegalities. Uh, you know, a facade of illegalities masquerading as uh, as biosocial order or improvement, if you will. So, in a sense, I'm trying to move away from this sort of. Uh, you know, historical wisdom that have looked at these protests primarily through a debate on causality. Who caused it? Why did it happen? I'm trying to say that the why and the who is actually deviating attention from the why it happened, in a sense. And the why it happened is not merely because somebody told these people to protest and walk away. It primarily happened, as I'm arguing, because this, because there was a simmering discontent which sort of boiled over of the vast uh, apparatus of illegality or illegalities at all levels that characterized this particular plantation form since its inception
1: almost uh, in in the 1840s. Thank you for that. Uh, If I may track back a bit to how the research came together, could you discuss the various sources you used and the archives that made this text possible?
0: Uh, yes, how did this uh, research come together? <laughs> That's a difficult question. No research comes together uh, you know, neatly, as we know. Uh, but there was one driving uh, you know, kind of question that I was always uh, thinking about, uh, and that is, to go back to what I just said, how do I bring the ecological dimension of monoculture plantations with its social? How do I actually blend them? while keeping a labor central and this is where I was I mean this is this is this is kind of my driving uh, principle this was my driving principle for this work uh, because i do address questions of bodily violence that are not merely visceral uh, meaning I was you know I, I talk about how violence uh, between master and men in a certain uh, archaic sense of the word is not always uh, is always visible it's not always visible on the body it can also be unseen uh, particularly in the way uh, these plantations were manipulated to increase uh, you know work hours and so on so in a sense uh, because i was being driven by this desire to bring the plant and the plantation together which hadn't been done uh, in a sense if i if i may just uh, you know if i may just say uh, with some degree of uh, confidence in the history of uh, commodity forms in British India or even uh, even in the Marxist scholarship on labor. Since I was driven by this desire to bring the plant and the plantation together, my sources were kind of uh, were related to that quest in a certain sense. So the sources include, uh, well, it includes uh, governmental and non-governmental uh, papers, papers. Uh, legal uh documents uh which in which which by which i mean labor laws uh forestry laws health laws uh there are also pest laws and and, and things of that sort so there is there's is legal history on the one side um sources include uh as i said to you uh, scientific uh sort of what is basically known as scientific uh, uh, data-driven elements. Uh, as I said, I'm not an entomologist. I'm not a scientist by any any stretch of the imagination or otherwise. I've been a humanist right from my bachelor's. But I, I, did, I did find uh, some merit in uh, trying to tease out the historical wisdom of that kind of uh, body of scholarship. So I did look into a lot of medical literature, uh, kind of entomological literature, uh, chemical uh, uh, sort of studies on tea and things of that kind. Uh, then there were uh, very traditional uh, sources, for instance, Labor uh, uh, labor Histories, uh, Planter Memoirs in Cambridge, uh, in India, uh, in Assam, that is. Um, I also found sources uh, in newspapers of the time, um, but a large bulk of my sources were actually from Assam, uh, from the Assam State Archives in the capital city of Guwahati as well as uh, unpublished uh, provincial uh, archives in uh, two provincial uh, towns or cities, if we call them, um, Jorhat and Debrugger in Upper Assam, which is actually uh, where much of this tea was grown. Uh, and this is, again, a quick aside. I was involved in the archival restructuring um, process uh, in 20. Uh, 20- 18 to 2020 I sort of overlapped with uh, some of my research as well during this period. So I looked at sources uh, in the provincial archives of Assam National Archives in New Delhi um, and, and then there was this whole, obviously, as all historians would know, an entire sort of a gamut of secondary sources, both published as well as uh, unpublished uh, you know between the uh, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Thank
1: think- you. Uh, well, Arna, I, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, if I may ask, uh, what are you working on now?
0: Right. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult question given the uh, given the constraints we are under. Uh, but thank you for your time, first of all, Muhammad. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I actually launched uh, kind of two projects, but I must be honest and 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 say that it hasn't gone anywhere primarily because uh, of my. Inability to uh, travel and visit archives, as I'm sure uh, everybody uh, also uh, also knows and and is uh, is facing. So it's kind of it's not unique to me per se. Uh, so one of the projects was actually about. Uh, it's kind of an extension of this project, but it's it's also uh, it's also a little more. Uh, it's it's a little broader than this. It's kind of a little more, perhaps is a little more ambitious. I'm not sure if you know if it will. Uh, Eventually, see the light of the day. But it, did, it was on environmental law in in uh, in the British Empire, uh, primarily South Asia. Uh, in a sense, I was trying to, uh, or I, I was driven to it by trying to understand the transition from uh, resource to right. You know, uh, in other words, how how did how did this transition happen from certain spaces? Uh, think of water, for instance, uh, being a collective resource to it suddenly being uh, carved out as a matter of right whether it is imperial right or uh, right of the state or right of a particular uh, municipality how did that transition happen uh, through what processes so that that's really one of one of my uh, projects that i started looking at in 20 i would say in the middle of 2019 uh, and sort of uh, simmering still uh, it's, a, it's a long way from from being formalized uh, the other was uh, in trying to actually understand uh, the relationship between uh, you know uh, nature and work uh, in uh, in in british india uh, again I, I would not be able to elaborate but not because i don't want to but because uh, because the 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 headway into that has been sort of severely uh, disrupted <laughs> if you if you if you will uh, but that's that's where I am at right now.
1: I know those sound like great projects, and I uh, look forward to seeing uh, more from you. I want to encourage all our readers to uh, grab a copy of Tea Environments and Plantation Culture. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Uh, take care.
0: Thank you for your time, Mohamed.
1: Thanks.